Hello, everyone. I want to do a very difficult episode, and I do not take any joy out of what I'm saying. I've been wrestling with grieving the loss of Christianity. The Americanized version as I know it. I'm not talking about the type of Christianity that sincere believers practice. I'm talking about the type of Christianity in quotations, actually churchianity, where it is so Painful that you had no choice but to leave the four walls called the church. I left the church spiritually kicking and screaming. It wasn't something I planned. It took me until March 2022 to officially leave the church four walls. So I've been... out of the church four walls for three months and it's been a difficult three months because I've had to stop listening to sermons and bible studies and even music that never fed my soul to begin with And I just stopped doing that about 15 minutes ago, to be truthful. 6.22, so 6.07 was the last time I listened to any evangelical presentation. Um, I recognize that not everybody can feed me. I recognize that I was taught that I could learn from everybody by just, you know, how nice people are taught. You can learn from anybody. I can't because not everybody's qualified to teach you lessons about life because of their waywardness. Not everybody can hydrate me and not everybody can help me satiate myself and be satisfied with myself. I don't eat what everybody brings to the table. I don't drink every liquid that people want to provide. These metaphors help me to understand that about church. Uh, That wisdom just came to me today. That that world is afraid to lose money for abuse survivors because that world is afraid to lose money for Jesus ultimately. Because there's nothing wrong with making money, but a lot of church people's mansions came at the expense of survivors, and I'll tell you how. Not ever preaching about survivors especially when the survivors are in the pews you were some a lot of the tithes and offerings came from the devils in the pews that masqueraded themselves as christians and so you've got unholy tithes and offerings from unholy people in your church so that's why you're able to pay as you know for your luxury cars and homes that cost multi-millions of dollars. But you did that at the expense of people like myself who are abuse survivors. As long as I keep I as long as I keep offending abuse survivors but never offending abuse abusers and abuser apologists in the church and out, then 
those are the people they would never want to offend. So you're reoffending victims of offenses. And you never offend violent offenders. You want to make money from those supportive of violent offenders and violent offenders themselves because they're in the church and, of course, out too. So that taught me that the body of Christ, as they like to call themselves, is not as big in physical numbers as I thought. I don't think that people that are said to be two bill, over 2 billion Christians, I don't believe that anymore. I used to think that was true, but once I started studying the spirit of Jesus, I stopped believing that. So the body of Christ is for the most part non-existing. I mean, they, the body of Christ exists when it comes to the very few Christians who actually read their faith text called the Bible, but they don't have any foolishness or stupidity or cold-heartedness in how they interpret scripture. They're willing to lose money for people like me. And I always appreciate true Christians. I really do. I appreciate true people of any religion, any faith, and any spirituality. The ones who are sincere believers, no, no matter what your faith walk is, I always appreciate them. But what I don't see enough of is believers checking each other in public. And I don't think it's happening enough in private either because the way things have been going on in church have shown me that there's not enough private constructive criticism. There's not enough private constructive conflict, there's not enough private constructive rebuke, there's not enough private constructive confrontation. Obviously, there's not enough public constructive rebuke, there's not enough public constructive conflict, there's not enough public constructive criticism, and there's not enough public constructive confrontation. So those things are lacking in the church because if we're saying that social justice is unbiblical, what you're saying is you hate being a Christian. What you're saying is you hate the rejection part of being a Christian. You hate the persecution part of being a Christian. You hate the suffering part of being a Christian. You hate the mortality part of your physical life of being a Christian. And you hate being Christ-like. You hate Christ-likeness. You hate Christ-consciousness. You hate Christ-nature. That means that you hate being godly. You hate being holy. You hate looking like an idiot in front of the world. You hate looking bad for Jesus in front of the world. But if you're a Christian... Jesus sees you as you look good to him, even if the world says you look terrible to them. What's more important? You looking good to him? Or I don't want to look terrible in front of them. And then and then what's more important? What's, what's really important? What's really important? I say what's more important to drive home a deeper point, to really shock you out of it's only important to look good in front of Jesus, obviously. Now, what's what's important? What's important? Is it important to be good in front of Jesus or go by what the world says what's good? Now, with the world. What they would say is 
It's okay to Christianize dog eat dog world. It's okay to Christianize every person for themselves. It's okay to Christianize you get yours, I get mine. It's okay to Christianize an arrogant type of individualistic society. It's okay to Christianize tabloid talk show behavior. It's okay to Christianize trash TV in your everyday life. And those things, all these things happen in church, by the way. It's okay to Christianize sin because you were born in original sin. It's okay to Christianize worldliness because you were born worldly. And so I had to leave church because I recognized they don't trust God at all. And they don't have faith in God at all. Because if they did, why is it okay to make money with people who are pure evil. Why is it okay to collude with pure evil? Why is it okay to make lies profitable and the truth unprofitable? Why does lying pay, and why does truth not pay? Why is it okay to secretly affirm people, but not publicly affirm people? Why is it okay to feel like it's about what I can get out of Jesus rather than what I can pour into Jesus? Why is ministry, me, myself, and I, why is it okay to come in church hateful and leave church more hateful than you already came? Why are hard truths rejected by believers? Because as a believer, you're not going to be happy with God all the time. You're not going to like God all the time. And they say that God takes people in healing eternally or temporarily. And that makes them mad because they've warped what it means for God to be a healer. They think it has to be um, how they want it all the time on earth, but according to their Bibles, it's not how it works. I never understood why is it okay to treat us as complete strangers when they begrudgingly say, hey, or how you doing, or you can see quote unquote greet us. I don't understand. Why treat people like me 
as someone you met on the street for the first time instead of somebody that worships with you as a scientist. Why make religion an idol? Why is the Bible God? Why is the pulpit God? Why is the choir loft God? Why are the congregation members God? Why are the regular attendees God? Why are the congregational guests God? Why are church leadership God? Why is ministry God? Why is the church God? Why are the hymns God? Why are the bulletins God? Why are the prayers God? Why are the sermons God? Why are the tithes and offerings, God? Why are the love offerings, God? Why do church people make everyone and everything God except the God of the Bible? Why Christianize all about the Benjamin's baby, even if that means you are of immoral character? Why Christianize greed and materialism? Why Christianize injustice, disparities, inequalities, and inequities? Why don't believers acknowledge times where they felt seemingly outcasted instead of Acknowledging that the least of these should make you recognize that at any moment I could end up as the least of these, so I need not to be arrogant, but I do need to be humble. At any time, a believer could end up blind, deaf, mute. And have any kind of disability. And that's something that not just believers have that fear, but non believers too. Nothing in life is guaranteed for the most part. Life is not completely set in stone. Why are pastors trying to play this so-called delicate role of preacher and I don't want to harm church business by taking a stand for the bruised of life? Why do they get on stages and just in front of people? They have this attitude of I don't want to do my Christian job. I don't want to do any of the contractual terms that Jesus laid out for me to do. They Christianize unhealthy lust, they Christianize greed, they Christianize anger, they Christianize wrath, they Christianize unhealthy anger, they Christianize loss, 
a Krishna is envy. A Krishna is unhealthy wrath. They Christianize sex cults. They Christianize death cults. They Christianize terroristic cults. They Christianize political cults. They Christianize racist cults. They Christianize rape culture. They Christianize domestic violence culture. And they Christianize intimate partner violence culture. And they Christianize date rape culture. They Christianize violent cults. They Christianize disability discrimination cults. They Christianize ableism cults. They Christianize caste systems. Um, they Christianize fear. They Christianize gluttony. They Christianize guilt. They Christianize blame. They Christianize shame. They Christianize worry. They Christianize hypocrisy. They Christianize judgmentalism. They Christianize Satan, they Christianize demons, they Christianize iniquity. They Christianize hell. They Christianize spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness. Spiritual, being spiritually mute. I've had to officially walk away from that world today. Also because they take too goddamn long to bless me. never on time, not even early to bless me. I cannot in good conscience remain in that world. They claim to speak for God, but according to your Bible, you're resenting and rejecting God's consciousness within you. Why is it okay to talk, talk, talk when it comes to like racism? For example, times we public panels, but they don't do anything about resisting racism in everyday lives, but even in church. I've come to the conclusion that the church world is incapable of blessing me. The church world is incapable of giving me righteousness. The church world is incapable of providing justice to my life. The church world is incapable of being holy to me. 
The church was incapable of being godly to me, and the church was incapable is incapable of being Christ-like towards me. How many people have taught me their son and grandson? So we don't keep up with each other and we know where to be found. And the only time they have a relationship with me is that the four walls that they are instead of at home line. I don't understand that world. A lot of people say they're Christian and capable of being Christian towards me. They don't see me. I'm just at the point where I decided Their definition of church is about being a social club and a country club. Their definition of church is about being a fraternity and a sorority. Some people would say, well, hypocrites on a job and everywhere. That's a way of trying to send themselves some constructive criticism in terms of the hypocrite labels in the church. But the problem is that since there's a normalization of hypocrisy, just admit hypocrisy is wrong anywhere and everywhere. Another thing I wanted to say was overall my church experiences have shown me that they have unholy spirits but they claim to follow the Holy Spirit. I also wanted to explain reasons that people leave the church. But I want to actually get specific about what that means. I'm going to read this important article. Christian, stop blaming sexual assault survivors. This anonymous guest writer, April 22nd, 2021, last year. This, uh, the warning, this article contains graphic content, including discussion of sexual assault, suicide, and self-harm. I remember hearing about sexual assault on big college campuses, usually a woman who went to a party, got drunk, or taken advantage of, or someone being ambushed and assaulted while walking alone at night. Typically, I thought to myself, it's awful what happened, but what, but what? But why was she drinking, walking alone? It's common sense. I would carry on with my day at class or the Calvin loop, barely giving another second. But I failed to recognize what, what I failed to recognize was the unintentional victim blaming in my train of thought. Never in my life did I think sexual assault would be my reality. The scarlet letter I wear on my chest every day. But it's there for me to see every morning when I wake up and look in the mirror. It's on my mind every night as I go to bed. Thoughts on replay force me to relive what happened last semester. 
It follows me wherever I go, in class, in church, everywhere, and everywhere it pleases. I want to shed light on a destructive part of sexual assault, the experience of victim blaming, the loneliness and isolation that comes after being flooded with mixed messages, shallow support, and twisted lies. I receive these things from people in my community, most of whom are Christians. Within weeks of speaking out, here's some of what I heard. Baggage can burden people. We need healing before joining our ministry. We're disappointed in you. You, you knew better than to self-destruct. He took advantage of you, but you also made a poor decision. You went looking for fire and you got burned. You only half consented, but still drove there and didn't fight back. Family and friends, pastors and police officers, some messages explicit, others in the form of subtle silence. Subtle silence. Regardless, it all felt overwhelmingly, excruciatingly difficult. My dignity had already been taken and intentional or not, others took even more. Their words invaded me like a deep, prolonged assault that lasted months after what one man did in an hour. Most people said I made a bad choice and knew better some things I did know. I knew people would question my values and scrutinize me for my quote-unquote unrighteous decisions. Yes, mom, premarital sex is bad. No, dad, I shouldn't talk to strangers. People told me, quote-unquote, I knew better, like it was all simple, but it wasn't. There was a lot I didn't know. I didn't know I could change my mind. I didn't know silence wasn't consent. I didn't know failing to say no, but failing to say yes wasn't consent. I didn't know he would take advantage of my vulnerability. I didn't know when I spoke up five, six, seven times that he was supposed to stop and ask if I was okay. I didn't know he would text me afterwards to confuse and manipulate me. I didn't know I would be blamed for something I didn't yet understand. I was not prepared for how the rape would impact those around me. I lost valuable relationships. I experienced abandonment and betrayal. People either knew I was struggling, didn't care enough, or they didn't know and were afraid to ask. But I wasn't okay, didn't handle it well. How did I cope? Skipping classes to write suicide notes and contemplating taking a bottle of pills. Taking a razor blade to my skin, trying to numb the pain. Weekends spent isolating myself, followed by nights sobbing in the fetal position. Breaking glasses and leaning over the toilet, finger down my throat, trying to erase the dirtiness I felt. Shrinking until I couldn't remember anymore and acting promiscuously to quote-unquote prove I'm not too broken. My story doesn't reflect every survivor and a minority of friends have been my rock. To them and safer places, campus safety, the Center for Student Success, thank you. The unconditional care I have received has taught me so much about who Christ really is. She's a believer, Jesus. Um, I'm, so, I'm sorry for saying she. Um, I don't know the person's gender pronouns, but this person is a believer. For the first time since the right back, I said confidently that one day I will go from victor to survivor to thriver, I will add. To my fellow knights, thank you for reading this. Do me a favor, text your loved ones, educate yourself, reconsider your understanding of sexual violence, and when you hear the stories from the news or loved ones later, please don't make my previous mistakes. Instead of blaming, act as Jesus, or as the person will say, act as Christ. If you or a loved one has have experienced sexual assault, harassment, or considering suicide, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255, Campus Safety at 616-526-3333, Four threes or contact safer spaces. I will definitely conclude with this article. Here we go. 13 critical reasons abuse survivors leaving the church married the month is the author. According to a recent LifeWay study, 10% of church attenders below age 5 have left the church because, because sexual abuse was not taken seriously. As we face the very real crisis of sexual abuse in our midst, it's critical to understand how churches will tell those who are, who are hurting. There are 13 reasons I believe why abuse survivors are leaving the church. One, we worry about false allegations. Because the gospel holds grace at its core, church leadership tends to quickly believe the best about those who may appear to repent, to repent from grievous sexual crimes. Yet they are overly cautious to believe a victim's report, even though FBI stats show 
that false reports make up less than 5.4% of reported rapes. When in doubt, err on the side of belief. Two, we worship a happy world. We compartmentalize our lives into sacred and secular spaces. In our secular framework, we quote unquote allow for sexual misconduct, but because we so desperately want our churches to be safe, we close our ears to the cries of those harmed because they mar our longing for a happy world. The world seems too unsafe if our church harbors sexual misconduct. We jump to believe the perpetrator doesn't want to silence the one who ruins our happy world. Three, we are naive about predators. The church has simply shown a gross naivete in its understanding of predators. The truth is they seem like us. They tend to be charming and friendly. It seems easier to rationalize that quote unquote so-and-so, the upstanding citizen, couldn't possibly have criminal leanings than to believe a victim. Four, we don't differentiate between sex and abuse because sex is a difficult, nuanced topic. We refrain from talking about it openly, including issues of consent. One survivor laments there's no discussion about the difference between abuse and consensual sex. Another shared a Christian counselor at my church whom I saw for my PTSD, asked me if calling it assault absolved me of guilt, that my rapist was simply incapable of stopping himself because he was a man, unlike me, who as a woman was capable of saying no to sex and should have stopped him. We must remember that consensual sex is not the same as sexual assault. Five, the church prioritizes reputation over doing what is right. One survivor shared that a church leader told her, don't report your brother's abuse. You'll ruin the calling God has on his life. The leader was more interested in the brother's reputation than justice. We also see this in the myriad of recent sex abuse scandals in the church. It follows a sadly predictable pattern. Abuse, a cry of abuse is made by one or many. Denial. Church leadership presents this to the person in question, who then flatly denies it, calling it lies. Protection, hoping to protect the reputation of the institution. The leadership publicly maligns the survivors and stands by the perpetrator, characterizing those who reported the abuse as agents of evil whose aim is to discredit the church. Proof, more people come forward with accusations until their sheer weight solidifies the veracity of the first people's claims apology the leadership finally issues a statement of apology after letting the perpetrator go damage those who made the outcry in the first place are left to deal with the public damage and lack of initial belief consequences the church's reputation is damaged anyway and worse than anticipated six we are naive about trauma because we don't understand the nature of trauma, we tend to throw Christian platitudes and verses of the broken. We tell people, that was so long ago, just get over it. The old is gone, the new has come, so if you're dwelling on the past, you don't have faith. God, after all, will work it all out for good. None of these pat answers dignify the very real pain of an abuse victim and offer a super superficial band-aid to a festering internal wound. Many pastors have little to no training about how to deal with the traumatized. They are not counselors and they carry a heavy, a heavy load of caring for a group of hurting people. I don't want to call them broken. I just call them hurting people. They may feel ill-equipped or overwhelmed when someone discloses abuse. Seven, we misplace shame. Sexual abuse thrives in darkness and shame often permeates the hearts of those who have been abused. One woman wrote that she always thought that if anyone found out I had been molested, I would be an outcast. Even coming back into the church two, de two decades later, I still believe no one would understand, especially when asked questions like, why didn't you say something? Shame should belong to the one who perpetrated, not to the one they harmed. Eight, we never talk about it from the front of the church. 
In nearly four decades, I can count on one hand the number of times a story like mine, I was raped by teenage boys as a kindergartner, has been shared from the pulpit. Even though I knew the sexual assault stats, I felt utterly alone. We need to create language around abuse. We need to hear real stories of people who have endured trauma. Otherwise, we look outside the church to find solace and companionship. Nine, we don't call sexual assault a crime. A man in his 30s in pastoral leadership does not have a consensual affair, quotations, or quote-unquote inappropriate relationship with a 16-year-old. To couch it in that language is to misunderstand the criminal justice system and to minimize a crime. Sexual assault is a crime. In addition, because it is a crime, it cannot be rightly handled in a church. If someone was mugged or robbed in front of a church and then ran into the building asking for help, the pastor would be a fool to only pray for the victim without first calling the police in an ambulance. Two, not to ten. We are naive about the healing journey. It's a decades-long process to work through trauma, but so few want to acknowledge this. One survivor aptly said, the church doesn't really know how to support survivors. They usually take the take two scriptures and please don't call me about this in the morning response. Nothing says it's okay to leave a church community like having members of your spiritual family look away from your hurting bleeding life what if we reframed the healing journey what if we simply called it discipleship to walk alongside someone through their wounds and victories becomes the work of the church in that model we don't see people as projects but as image bearers of jesus who christians believe died for them 11 we elevate forgiveness over justice there have been stories of pastors bringing the abuser and the abuse into a meeting for the sake of reconciliation. The perpetrator, who is great at play acting, remorse, apologizing, quotations, prompting the pastor to tell the victim to forgive in that moment or be faced with becoming bitter or insane. One survivor perfectly captured the scenario. Churches want to offer forgiveness to perpetrators without justice and expect silence from survivors without justice. 12. We are too busy. Many survivors share that once they disclose their abuse, they become ostracized by leadership because of their perceived neediness. People who used to be supportive friends suddenly move away from relationship. Part of that may be due to a lack of training on how to respond redemptively, but their response could also be chalked up to overly scheduled and stressful lives. We simply have no margin for those who have ongoing suffering, nor does the church know how to grieve alongside those who are hurting. Grief and trauma are long-term commitments, but we have become accustomed to short-term easy solutions. 13, we push away the reformers. Instead of seeing abuse survivors as tutors, leading us towards becoming compassionate representatives of Jesus, we repel them. They're the ones who understand the dynamic of our weakness, married to Jesus' strength, the ones that Christians call Christ. See Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. But we would rather silence their voices and pretend that all is well. We forget that they are deeply valuable to the life of the growing church. As, as one who loves the church, it's Mary Demeth still talking. I agree that she has pushed away those who are hurting. I pray that we will look at ourselves and our systems honestly, humbly choosing to repent of our lack of response to the people who are hurting. I believe revival comes on the cusp of such a necessary repentance. Mary DeMuth is a speaker, podcaster, advocate, and author of dozens of books, including her latest, We Too, How the Church Can Respond Redemptively to the Sexual Abuse Crisis, Harvest House Publishers. Find out more at http slash www.we2.org. Um... Let's continue on.
hace I'm gonna keep going. Yes. Why is abuse rampant in the church? Dina Johnson Martin. Crosswalk.com blogs by Dina Johnson and Dina Stevos. May 24, 2022. This morning, I had a headline pop up on my phone. Bombshell. 400 page report finds Southern Baptist leaders routinely silence sexual abuse survivors. I clicked on the link out of curiosity to what the secular news agency had to say, knowing that for a lot of Christians, they feel like there's often a bias against Christianity against them. Then the writer says, however, like most of you, I know that there's been sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, SBC, and all religious denominations. How do I know? Because I've experienced it within my own marriage to a Southern Baptist pastor. My experience is slightly different. But it is still abuse. He used scripture to manipulate me. He had an adulterous relationship. Think about it. Adultery is a form of abuse. But let's take it a step further. While the quote-unquote other woman made a conscious decision to have an affair with my then-husband, she could also be considered a victim of his abusive behavior. He took advantage of his position as a pastor to draw her in. She was enamored with his biblical knowledge, with his godliness, something she perceived her husband didn't possess. How do I know? Because I read the emails and transcripts of their late night chats. So much of it was her perception of who he was from his pulpit, not who he was behind closed doors. Why is it be so rampant in the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention? Why is it be so rampant in the church? While I'm certain it is multifactorial, I could share a few things that I've come to realize over the years. One, okay, um, I don't like to make this religious. I'll simplify the religious things because I want to just get to the heart of things. Basically, I don't want to. I don't want to read a lot of the religious stuff. I I, I just don't. I really don't because I'm not supposed to be preachy. I don't think anybody's supposed to be preaching. We need, I'll read the parts that I can. The problem is that we fail to give any time to abuse and boundaries and toxicity. We fail to see that Jesus himself wasn't a doormat allowing others to walk on him. When he faced the Pharisees, he recognized the toxicity in their hearts and called them out on it. His words were not kind and gentle, but direct and truthful. He chose to put space between himself and those who were toxic to him and to his mission. When, so this is for believers. I'm trying to speak on this generally, but a lot of times I get Christian articles. I'm like, not everyone's a Christian. I don't want to feel like I'm forcing anything on people. We need to, Christians need to learn that boundaries and recognizing abusive, toxic behaviors are not contradictory to their faith. Instead, it can actually enhance their relationship with the person they the one they believe is God. Um, when my pastor husband had an affair, I remember tearfully telling a friend my biggest concern was the damage that we had inflicted on the name of Jesus, the one Christians call Christ. The truth is that we had not done anything to damage the name of Jesus. He had done something to damage the name of the one they believe is God. But I was connected to him. I was his wife and I decided the right thing. I had forgiven and forgiven and forgiven again and failed to stand up to my husband. I was so intent on staying in my marriage because it was the right thing that I failed to see how walking away could actually be the will of the one that they believe is God. So many of us are actually incredibly devoted to our faith, meaning people who are believers. Believers would say that. And we fear exposing our abuse. Uh, we fear exposing our abusers will actually damage the name of Jesus. It makes us so much it makes it so much harder to walk away. And then you have abusive spiritual leaders often know scripture and are capable of subtly twisting it to make it seem sound and biblical. They have often already gained their victims' trust through their charisma and the persona they portray. 
They usually have command of the scriptures and we rarely question or doubt their authority on the scriptures. It makes it fairly easy for them to gently groom their victims and convince them their view of scripture is not fully correct. Think about submission. How many times have we heard that a wife is to submit to her husband? The man who takes that scripture out of the greater context and uses it to control his wife is guilty of twisting scripture. The truly godly man, you know, a, a person, a sincere believer man of Jesus will recognize that submission is a two-way street that must be tempered with all the wonderful qualities of Christianity, forgiveness, grace, patience, and tenderhearted mercy. It's not an opportunity for the man to exercise control, but it's instead an act of respect and putting others ahead of ourselves. Sadly, abuse in the SBC and the church in general is real and damaging. It's time we empower the ones who are faithful, faith-based people, with the truth. The truth that people are toxicity doers and evil doers. The truth that the Christian faith lends itself to missing toxic and abusive behaviors. The truth that we could get caught up in doing the right thing for God as they believe and failing to see how we are easily being led astray. We must learn that Jesus didn't always offer grace. Sometimes he chose to walk away from those religious folks who were toxic and abusive. However, our earthly experiences are with toxicity doers, needful doers. And that there are leaders out here who are religious leaders who are supposed to be teaching them more on how to be more like Christ himself. A lot of them are toxicity doers and evildoers. And according to their Bible, James 3, chapter 1, they'll be judged more strictly one day. And don't put spiritual leaders on a pedestal because you'll learn how rotten they can be. You don't want to learn the hard way. Now you understand more of the reasons why I left church Christianity and religion. <laughs>